0: Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by The Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And
1: I'm Rich Firma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific
0: from New Delhi to Tokyo. Thanks Rich, and we're very lucky today to have with us in the Tea Leaves studio a great friend of ours for many years, one of the most prolific, widely regarded authors in the world, Bob Kaplan. Uh, Bob is uh, prolific beyond uh, almost any other writer I know, one of the great uh, voices shaping how Americans see the world. Uh, He is Uh, well-traveled, gracious, uh, with tremendous strategic insights. Uh, Bob has penned more than a dozen books on subjects ranging from the U.S. involvement in the Middle East to 13th century geopolitics, from the U.S. military to Balkan history, and from geography to famine. His most recent book, which we're going to talk about today, is entitled The Return of Marco Polo's World, War, Strategy, and American Interest in the 21st Century. Bob, let me just start with you, if I could. You've written on a number of topics, each of them extraordinarily well-timed. You wrote a lot about the Balkans during a period when American policymakers were grappling with what to do with the disintegration of Yugoslavia, uh, helped guide our way through that mess. Uh, You wrote uh, uh, in profound terms about the Middle East as the United States was thinking about its options uh, around Iraq and uh, subsequently Afghanistan. More recently, you've written about the coming contest in the South China Sea and about uh, the competition taking place in the Eurasia theater between the United States and China. This uh, excellent book about the return of Marco Polo is is really about um, the contours of that competition. Uh, Rich and I were talking a little bit beforehand. It it feels a little pessimistic to me, and I think it raises questions about American staying power. But I'm curious, just as we get started, what made you write this or collect these um, uh, pieces from your past and put it together in such an interesting form?
2: Uh, Well, Kurt, it's a great pleasure to be here, and uh, almost 20 years ago, I published an earlier collection of essays called The Coming Anarchy, which had a lead anchoring essay from an Atlantic monthly cover story, and then a number of other essays that fit broadly into the theme, and 20 years had gone by, and I had uh, been commissioned by the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment to do a a piece, you know, a strategic piece on Eurasia. Why Eurasia? Eurasia used to just be a high school social studies term that had no meaning because it was too big to mean anything from Portugal to Indonesia. But because of the way technology has shrunk geography. Uh, Eurasia has been cohering into an understandable system of rivalry, trade, competition, and conflict. So I thought that Marco Polo's route could be used as a geographical framing device in order to discuss. The dynamics today where issues like the South and East China Seas and the Baltic and Black Sea basins can now interact with each other in a way that we never thought possible even 10 years ago. The world is like, Eurasia is like on a taut string. You pluck one part of the system and the whole network vibrates because of the way that technology has not defeated geography, it's just shrunk it. So I did this for net assessment, they released it for public view, and I put it together with essays that I've done over the last 20 years, which fit into the theme that History is messy. It's tumultuous. You go from one struggle to another. There is no permanent peace. And for instance, I dealt with thinkers who I thought uh, very interestingly uh, grappled with this. Henry Kissinger, Samuel Huntington, John Mearsheimer, all of them unpopular. All of them, you know, used to bad book reviews and attacks, and because they raised questions that nobody wanted to deal with, and so I dealt, I dealt with them, and I grappled with with U.S. involvement in the Middle East, etc. So what I hope I've got is a collection that that deals with the world on the ground, the dirty, vivid grimy ground level, but also takes a step back with how the U.S. should proceed about it. Bob, uh, it's a real thrill
1: for me uh, to have you here. I I bought uh, Balkan Ghosts in 1993 when I was headed out uh, to Eastern Europe and, uh, you know, read it two or three times. Amazing book. Um, but as Kurt said, um, you know, your view, if, if it's not pessimistic, it's it's kind of super realist. It, it takes the view that, as you said, as the world's getting more connected, some of us would say that makes the world more peaceful. And you take an actual uh, a counter view of that. And maybe if I could put you and Kurt on, on different sides, you know, Kurt's written a book about Asia, talking about Asia actually getting more democratic, more economically interconnected. And and actually more peaceful in many respects. And again, you've taken exactly the opposite uh, view. Just talk us through that.
2: Yeah, uh, connectivity has a positive connotation in terms of trade, financial markets, technology, culture even but in geopolitics connectivity can have a negative connotation because it allows different conflict zones and rivalries to interact with each other so instead of a simplistic one-dimensional multipolar or bipolar world you have a, a, a i mean bipolar or unipolar world you have a multipolar world where a conflict, a short, sharp conflict, say in the South China Sea, can migrate to other zones. So in that sense, connectivity can increase uh, you know the chances for instability. You know we used to have wars of neat geographical separation. Nazi Germany versus the United States—they would meet for a, a sea battle in the Atlantic between them. Now, because of cyber, we're all inter, we're all inside the same network. So you can have wars of integration. Rather than a geographical separation so and you see this play out with disinformation attacks hacking and all of that, so I think we're we're entering a world where which is going to be people are going to get richer and richer you know people are going to be lifted out of poverty, but geopolitically it's going to be increasingly fragile
1: but uh, the underlying theory maybe take the connectivity piece and the advancement in technology and communications aside, your underlying theory, though, is that it's one of uh, empire, you say, remains the organizing principle. And you quote Ken Waltz and Mersheimer and others, as you say, you know, war is the recurring norm. But has that really been the case over the uh, post-Cold War period? I mean, You know, you look at the international institutions, you look at the interconnectedness again between countries. Could you not argue the world has become more peaceful and less prone to great power
2: conflict? Uh, No, because the very rise of international institutions, you know, the world, the International Criminal Court in the Hague, NATO, the World Economic Forum in Davos, EU, are all attempts to replace the traditional function of empire. The function of empire never goes away. If you want to understand the Chinese mentality or the Indian mentality, or especially the Iranian mentality, or the Turkish mentality, you've got to go back to the Chinese dynasties to the, you know, the period of tributary harmony under the Ming dynasty. You have to look at India under the Gupta, Nanda, Mauryan, Mogul, Empires when the eastern half of Afghanistan was essentially part of India, so no surprise that the Indians are so concerned about an American withdrawal from Afghanistan. And the Iranians, it's never stopped. The Ayatollahs are just the new, the latest version of Persian imperialists. You know, you know, with a sphere of influence stretching from the Eastern Mediterranean to Central Asia, exactly the borders of every Iranian empire going back to antiquity. And so empire is very much in the mentality of of great states across Asia. And the reason the Chinese and the Iranians are so good at it, because they have a vision, positive or negative, is because of this imperial tradition. The Saudis have no tradition of it, so they're actually very bad at it. Mm. I mean, what they've been doing in Yemen and Qatar has backfired because they have no imperial tradition to draw upon. And these international organizations are really about the question, if not empire, what then?
0: So, Bob, you talk a little bit in both this book and in some of your other writings about what are some of the elements of uh, the Chinese approach to global politics. And you talk a little bit about the one belt, one road. Now, what we've seen of late has been, um, I think the thing that has surprised me at least a little bit is that the level of enthusiasm at these meetings, the, the determination to get in on the ground floor for these vast resources that are gonna be flowing from Beijing. Not clear that that is actually gonna be the case, but let's imagine that there will be some. I'm surprised many of the areas that the Chinese leadership is thinking about applying this, this uh, remarkably ambitious scheme towards have always resisted empire. And I'm struck that in some of the places in Pakistan and Afghanistan and parts of the Middle East, they appear to be somewhat enthusiastic about this new initiative, Uh, not at least at the outset, interpreting it as an element of empire, more uh, about Um, vast amounts of resources coming their way help us understand that
2: yeah I think that the first thing you need as an empire or a great power like the United States which has had imperialistic elements since 1945 is you need a vision and it has to be some kind of uplifting vision that energizes people people see a benefit for them in buying into your imperial idea so the Chinese have a vision You know, about connecting the Middle East, connecting Africa. And essentially, um, they're in the early stages of the British or Dutch East India Company across the Indian Ocean going all the way to the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, And so, and their vision uh, may be dictatorial, but from an economic perspective, it's uplifting for, you know, everyone can see a benefit out of it. Now, I should say this about One Belt, One Road. It's a branding operation for what the Chinese have already done in Central Asia with roads, railways, pipelines. It connects China to Iran, and Iran plus China is an unbeatable combination that marginalizes Russia, uh, 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 in my opinion. And also, um, what it does is it deals with China's internal demons by surrounding the Turkic Muslim Uyghurs in Western China while lifting up their standard of living at the same time. So it, it works in many. And, and, and the key thing is, even if they only achieve part of this, um, that's still a win-win, because at least it's a
0: direction. It's a grand strategy. It's a vision. So, Bob, you talk about the relations between China and the outside world. There are two countries I'd like to um, uh, probe you on a little further. Um, You talk about the relationship in complex ways in this book between China and the United States. I'd be interested in your view. How How have Chinese attitudes about the United States evolved? And what do they want in this relationship? Is it is Is coexistence as equal great powers possible, or are they ultimately uh determined um uh, for supremacy and and the other relationship, just if you could, talked a little bit about this potentially unbeatable combination between China and Iran, aimed um, uh, potentially at Russia. The irony over the last fifteen or twenty years, Russia and China have made common cause on so many things. I am just wonder from the Russian perspective, do they see this coming? Do they understand? And what yeah. game are they playing to try to counter?
2: Yes, uh, China would like to eventually have supremacy in the South China Sea and the East China Sea, generally in East Asia, to recreate their tributary system from late medieval early modern history. But they know they need to do it without ever firing a shot at the US Navy, cuz they know they're inferior or at least for another generation will be for a whole host of reasons, going from seamanship to battle network technology, etc. So it's about fighting so it's about winning without having to fight. And if you look at China's strategy in the South China Sea, what you see is they're at war with us, we just don't know it yet. Um, Because it's like, you know, it's like a thousand micro steps, so miniature, that to respond to any one of them, you seem to be overreacting. It's much different than the Russian approach to aggression. The Chinese are French waiters compared to the, you know, (laughs) the the Russians in this regard. So the Chinese recognize their own vulnerabilities, and they know that the way to supremacy is very, Gradual. Mm-hmm.
0: I want to I want to push you on this, and then have you talk a little bit about Russia. It's always struck me that as you think about the coming challenge of the United States in Asia, that you know what prepared us for this is fifty years of Cold War, forty-five years of Cold War, followed by fifteen to twenty years of hot war in the Middle East, which is really about military balances, uh, preparing to use you know, special operations and the like, that's really not what the game is about in Asia. It's much more subtle, much more interconnected. And so our, in in fact, our our historical preparation for this moment in many respects is lacking, but I'd have you talk a little bit more about this, this competition between the United States and China. And in your view, do we understand the contours of the game and then on the Russia point? Yeah. um
2: it, 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 Alfred Thayer Mahan wrote over a hundred years ago that dictatorships are better at long range planning than democracies. Hmm. Um, and I, I think we see this in the Chinese, you know, American competition, I would call it. Um, I, I think the Chinese now have a vision, but curiously, we don't. Uh, you know, we've reduced our vision of free trade and, you know, and democracy you know, uh, in Asia to one of, uh, can you help us out on North Korea and can we get a better deal with trade with China? That's not a vision. Um, and without a vision, uh, what happens is that, it, you know, decades ago, Lee Kuan Yu this, you know, who the the leader of Singapore, said that the di- problem is that the Americans don't have to be in Asia. Yes, they have a tradition of being in Asia, World War II, Vietnam, Korea, Commodore Perry, et cetera, but they don't actually have to be there. And a day may come when the Americans think that maybe they don't have to be there, that, you know, you know that they don't need a vision, that they're not really an Asian power. And at that point, China remains the organizing principle of Asia, economic, geographic, a demographic, so that... Asia, the danger is that Asian countries, including our allies, will make quiet, insidious deals with China because they can't depend or they think they cannot depend on us anymore. And I think we're in this danger zone now. This is a process that's off the headlines, it happens quietly and insidiously. And then you wake up in seven or eight years and you see that the world has changed and you can you cannot go backwards and i think we we haven't recognized that danger yet um on on russia yeah uh in term you know we tend to divide the world in black and white manichean terms between dictatorships and democracies But as a foreign correspondent for decades, I always saw the greatest differences between one kind of dictatorship and another kind of dictatorship. What does Saddam Hussein, a mass murderer, have to do with the Sultan of Oman, who's an absolute autocrat, but an enlightened liberal intellectual at the same time? And China and Russia may both be dictatorships, but they're extremely different kinds that have to do with the differences between China's culture. Culture and historical experience and Russia's culture and historical experience. So that don't ever, you know, the Chinese and Russians are allies of convenience at this particular point in history. But the logic of Belt and Road played out across Eurasia, you know, inevitably has to marginalize Russia. Because remember, Central Asia is the former Soviet Union. Uh, the Ru- um, the Russian Far East is demographically and economically threatened by China. Um, the Russians cannot compete in former Soviet Central Asian countries with China. and. The fact is that Putin, who's supposed to be such a master strategist, by being so obsessed with the West, with undermining Central Eastern Europe and the United States, has essentially ceded the future of, of the Russian Far East and uh, Central Asia to China. One of
1: one of the prescriptions uh, that you talk about with regard to the developments in Asia is actually to expand the Asia pivot and bring it into South Asia, uh, which was really interesting uh, to me. And I just wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, not only South Asia but the role that you see India playing and p- perhaps the U.S.-India
2: relationship as well. Yeah, um, you know it's interesting. I talked at the beginning of our discussion about how technology has shrunk geography. Look at China and India. For almost all of history, they had nothing whatsoever to do with each other. Two completely different civilizations separated by the Himalayas. Yes, Buddhism spread from the Indian subcontinent to China in Middle Antiquity, and you had the Opium Wars in the mid-19th century, but generally little to do with each other. But now you have an Indian intercontinental ballistic missile system focused on Chinese cities. You have Chinese fighter jets on the Tibetan Plateau, that can include India in their arc of operations. You have Indian warships in the South China Sea occasionally. You have Chinese warships, including submarines, all over the Indian Ocean, China building or helping to finance ports throughout the Indian Ocean. So the long and the short of it is that India and China are now locked into a new geography of rivalry that never existed before in history. And India, simply because of where it is located, how big it is, simply by being itself, is a counterpoint to China. It balances against China. Uh, As long as we understand that we may never be able to have a fully-fledged, formal, strategic alliance with India, because the Indian body politic, its pride, its intellectuals especially, would probably rebel against that. But as long as we play it subtly and just encourage India to develop its economy, to liberalize its economy, to keep building up its military, it's a natural hedge against China without having to sign any diplomatic documents.
1: You brought up Iran earlier uh, with regard to China, but you also write about uh, Chabahar port and Iran and India, for example, which interestingly, you say, could actually be one of these um, kind of countervailing moves against the Chinese, which a lot of kind of strategic thinkers in Washington would say we should never encourage, but you actually take a different view.
2: I don't see the Iranians as long-term enemies. Um, I think Iran as a culture is closer to the West, it's Indo-European, uh, it's far more urbanized, sophisticated than Saudi Arabia or the Arab world. I think we're at a, a, a we're at a, a, you know at a point in history when Iran and the U.S. are enemies. But the long term, I don't believe that. I think you know that Iran uh, that that ultimately um, an Iranian-Indian trade pathway balances against the Chinese-Pakistani trade pathway. And by the way, I think the Chinese, the Belt and Road that goes south from Kashgar in western China directly to Gwadar in Pakistan is the most ambitious part of the whole Belt and Road vision, mm. because it goes through areas that the Pakistani army has never managed to control in the first place. So, um, you know, good luck to
0: the Chinese <laughs>
2: if they think they can right.
0: stabilize this area. Right so we've talked mostly about the dominant states in the the either the pivot states or the states that are going to dominate uh uh politics in the next period ahead what about the role for secondary powers what what are their choices countries like japan and south korea uh and singapore um what do you foresee their um terrain to look like and what kind of choices will they face
2: yeah i think that the rock solid stabilizing factor in asia is the u.s japan treaty alliance Hmm. if that were ever threatened um because japan is so much more powerful and militarily powerful than almost any other country in Asia, except for China with a little bit South Korea. You know, Japan is the military power that doesn't speak its name, so to speak. And it is the US-Japan Treaty Alliance that will allow us to survive this present period of no vision coming out of Washington, I think. Um, but, of course, if, you know, if you're North Korea, you know that it's not just the U.S. and Japan, and it's not just the U.S. and its allies in Northeast Asia that have tension. It's also the allies with each other. Uh, you know, I see North Korea as a national fascist state more than a communist state. Where the real enemy is ethnic enemy, it's Japan. So the North Koreans will try to split South Korea from Japan. Even as they try to split both South Korea and Japan from the United States, so you know what's you know these are major countries, you know major economies: North, uh, South Korea, Japan, and Singapore. I mean, Singapore may be in terms of punching above its weight, um, the most the most impressive small country economically militarily in the world without it you know without making a value comparison it's sort of like israel in the middle east
0: Bob, you said a little earlier when you were describing yourself, and obviously you've served uh, for much of your career as a journalist, but I'm curious, how do you describe yourself? You know, you have made a um, plea to understand the importance of geography um, you've talked about it in a way almost uh, as a defender of a discipline and a way of looking at the world that has been forgotten by modern academia or transient journalism. Uh, do you, how do you describe yourself and are you, uh, are you a inhabitant of a tribe that's dying away, or do you think you're coming back? Um, I think it's a tribe
2: that's dying away. I mean, I consider myself an old-fashioned generalist journalist um, who looks at f- strategy, philosophy from the point of view of a journalist trying to understand it and then explaining it to readers. Um, so in that sense, I've always been a journalist. Uh, but what's happened to journalism is, is that as it's become an elite profession, it's also merged with the human rights community. So it deals with ideals and and the mistakes of power Rather than, uh, you know, rather than explore strategy, that's why you have the formation of all these groups in Washington and New York, whether it's the Asia Group, Eurasia Group, you know, others, you know, all these forecasting firms, these consulting firms, because 35 years ago, journalism would have done this. You know, because journalists, you used to be able to pick up the New Yorker or the Atlantic and get answers if you were a businessman to strategy around the world, to age, you know, to age old geopolitical verities. But so as journalism is contracted in a way, um, uh, you know, I've try to remain an old-fashioned generalist. And in terms of geography, I think with the decline of geographical studies and the rise of political science as a replacement, what we've gotten in a dangerous way is an ahistorical way of looking at the world. But what's incredible about your books
1: and your approach, again, if you go back to Balkan Ghosts, for example, You don't talk just about strategy or geopolitics. In fact, just the opposite. You give us this firsthand view of all these individual stories of people that you got to know about your travels through places no one was going or the places people still haven't been to this day. And to me, that's just as impactful and insightful at the human level so those stories must have an impact on you as a person and your outlook of the world It,
2: it all starts with geography and i mean geography in the 19th century sense of the word where a geography leads to studies not just of ports and mountains and pipelines but to a discovery of the people actually living on the terrain i mean what is a civilization what is a culture it's it's how it's the experience of a large group of people in the same geographical terrain over hundreds and thousands of years, which has led to various traits and characteristics, uh, you know, and values that they have in common. And the way to get at this situation is through individual stories. So it goes back to journalism mm. in a way. It's all interconnected. Mm.
1: You write something in your In your latest book, you say the surface of the world may be more cosmopolitan, but nationalism is still the bedrock.
2: Yeah, I think what we've seen in the last, Uh, generation is the creation of something that never really existed before except in early modern history, which is a cosmopolitan global elite, which has more in common with each other and more loyalties to each other than their poorer compatriots in their own countries. So that, uh, you know, the late Samuel Huntington of Harvard wrote about this in his 2004 book, Who Are We? You know, he said and he wrote in 2004, rather published then, that the United States faces a crisis with Mexican migration uh, which the elites have no interest in because the elites are no longer a national elite. They're a global cosmopolitan elite, and that's going to lead to a populist explosion. Mm-hmm. And he published this in 2004. Every single critic attacked him and panned him. Um, but yet, he, you know, he was a
0: great inductive thinker and he was on to something. So uh, in many respects... Uh... Bob, in addition to being a geographer and a journalist, you're also an explorer. And you've seen more of the world than anyone I know. So if you had to get on an airplane tonight (laughs) and go to place that you really wanted to explore, where would it be? Well, I
2: just got back from two weeks of interviews and exploring in Albania and Montenegro, which are kind of to Western Europe what Mexico and Central America are to the United States. They are places that are technically in NATO, technically democracies, but they have very little rule of law you know, governed by crime groups, infiltrated by the Russians, um, and it's really the edge of Europe. And they're fascinating to me because if Europe, can, if the EU with U.S. support cannot integrate eventually these two countries in Serbia, et cetera, um, you will have a return uh, you know, a return to an anarchic Europe, the, um, because uh, because these places have no future except under the umbrella
0: of the EU, which is their only path to virtue. I, I have a nomination for you at some point. I'd love to have the Bob Kaplan uh, wisdom uh, directed at this problem. One of the things that struck me when I was at the State Department is the number of countries that were beginning to maneuver for position, either in the North Pole or in uh, the Arctic. And it was just a striking, uh, you know, uh, great politic maneuvering in international organizations, making various uh, mineral claims and the like. Um, In many respects, even countries that were far afield all thought they had a... uh, a role in the ultimate destiny of these areas that are more accessible due to climate change. So as you think about, even probably the food isn't as good, but (laughs) but, uh, a fascinating set of issues.
2: Yeah, it is. And remember, the North Pole is not land. It's all sea. There is no land up there. It just happens to be frozen, the sea. (laughs) But technically, it's a sea. It's a sea surrounded by the major continents where everybody lives whereas the South Pole is land surrounded by a sea where almost nobody lives. So, you know, very different. And that's why the North Pole is more strategic than the South Pole, because, you know, sea routes across the North Pole will connect Europe and Asia and and, and North America, Um, you know, connect the major nodal points of civilization in a way that the South Pole won't.
1: You've given us so much to think about. I just want to bring it back home maybe to Washington and kind of how we think about the U.S. role uh, given this this backdrop. And you do, uh, I think one of your subtexts of your essays is that the U.S. matters increasingly less in this due construct. And I think that's disconcerting for us that saw the kind of, through the Cold War and post Cold War unipolar movement that you write is now gone. So what does that mean for the, for the U.S.? What is the role that we play? Do our values matter? Does democracy promotion matter? Uh, or is this really about kind of keeping sea lanes open
2: for, for trade? All right, two answers to that. First, Belt and Road is a vision. It's a system across Eurasia. Of trade, you know, interconnectivity of peoples, etc. The only way the United States can have influence in this emerge in this emerging, cohering Eurasian system is by promoting democracy and free trade of vision. Because precisely, because the U.S. is located on the other part of the world, it has no territorial claims. So we can be trusted as the as the necessary outsider in a way nobody else can so being separated from Eurasia is actually a benefit in this regard but it only but it only matters if we have a vision in terms of authoritarianism and democracy 20 years ago exactly, I published a cover story in The Atlantic called Was Democracy Just a Moment? Everyone, if you remember in the 90s, was predicting the triumph of democracy. Mm -hmm. I said, no, the next phase is authoritarianism. But now what I see is that authoritarianism is reaching its limits and will. And let's take China, for example. Um, The creation of a large middle class has to go along with institutions that are more and more flexible responsive and agile or else the very creation of a large middle class can be politically destabilizing because the truth is the more you give people the harder they are to rule rather than the easier cuz the more demands they make upon upon government so i think um china's system if it evolves away from enlightened authoritarianism into real like solid state hardcore authoritarianism will face its own crisis Uh, maybe in the 2020s but it will face a crisis whereas the united states has the ability to bounce back you know we have elections at the local state and federal elect uh, system we can eject people we can bring new people in there's a self-correcting mechanism in the american system that doesn't exist in the chinese and certainly not in the russian system
0: yeah well that that's That's a hopeful note to end on. (laughs) It's interesting, you know, Bob, when you look back at much of the writing about the Deng Xiaoping period and how much time he and his colleagues carefully devoted to try to create these institutions that would limit endless power of the leadership to try to redress some of the challenges that the leadership uh, lived through in Mao Zedong, and now to have that all washed away. And if you look at some of the analysis, Dung and his colleagues understood very clearly that when you are operating largely alone, you're much more likely to make mistakes, miscalculations and the like. In terms of miscalculations, just one last question before we let you go today. You have written recently that the American decision to withdraw from the Trans-Pacific Partnership was the biggest strategic error that we've uh, made in Asia Uh, since uh, the Vietnam War. Now, we've made a lot of errors, Mm. so that's a pretty high bar. Um, Help us understand that analysis.
2: Vietnam, remember, was a process. It wasn't one error. It was a slow, slippery slope with some steep areas. But the Trans-Pacific Pipeline was a deliberate, self-inflicted error because the Asia pivot, as I understand it, was ultimately to be about trade. Uh, You know, moving more warships from the Middle East to the... To the you know to the Western Pacific was all fine and good, but it wasn't the end of the road. It was just a path to a vision, a vision of free trade, democracy, etc. When we remove when we withdrew from TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we essentially withdrew from our own vision. We we failed our own test. Now, of course, you can get better trade deals. There's nothing wrong with that. And you know we may have made some bad decisions in the past but because we're a naval power uh historically that's what we are we stand for democracy and free trade it's kind of a triangle and and so by removing by withdrawing from tpp we totally tore apart the triangle and that's why I, you know i think it was the single most um
0: self-inflicted error since the process of vietnam Bob, thank you. Um, This has been a treat. You've given us so much to think about, and you've helped guide us through uh, the contours, really, of the 21st century throughout Eurasia, and done it uh, with style and wit. Um, We want to urge all of our readers to go out quickly and buy uh, The Return of Marco Polo's World War, Strategy, and American Interest in the 21st Century, It's a great read and one that will leave you better equipped to deal with the challenges ahead. Yeah, Bob, thank you not only for this recent book, but
1: all of the writings over the years. Uh, It's great for you to be here with us today. And thank you all for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time. Thank you both. Thank you.